Welcome to this episode of ComScore's podcast, Many Screens, Big Picture, with Paul Dergarabedian. On this episode, Paul speaks with Christy Lemire. Christy Lemire is a longtime film critic whose work appears at RogerEbert.com. She co-hosts the podcast Breakfast All Day with Alonzo Duraldi and Matt Achity. She also appears on radio on KPCC Film Week and KCRW Press Play in Southern California and is a correspondent for the SoCal scene on Spectrum News One. A third-generation Los Angeles native, Christy lives in Palos Verdes Estates with her husband and son. Christy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you so much. It's so good to be on somebody else's podcast. Nobody ever asked me. This must be unusual for you because I was on your podcast, Breakfast All Day, not that long ago. It was before all this pandemic stuff hit. So I actually went to your location and it was great to be in studio with you, which is a different dynamic, although we're virtually together right now, which totally works for me. I hope this works for you. And you're a pro. So, <laughs> but, I, but you're probably not accustomed to being interviewed. You're usually doing the interviewing. I ask a lot of questions. And that, I think that's part of why I like doing my podcast and the interview series, the a la carte interview series that I do for it is because if I were to meet you or meet anybody that I've had on as a guest, just at a cocktail party or a dinner or whatever, I'd probably ask them all those kinds of questions that I ask about, how do you do what you do? And I, it would be super rude and intrusive. <laughs> and the confines of a podcast is just me being an inquisitive journalist. Well, I don't even <laughs> think it's, you know, most people I think love to talk about themselves. So yeah, you may think it's it's rude and intrusive, but people people, most people like, they're like, please ask me more things about myself. I'm super so, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm incredible. Everybody thinks they're the most interesting person in the world, but you actually are. So I want to start with you asking you like some basic questions. Cause the presumption is a lot of people listening aren't really in the business, may not know the business of film and entertainment and news and journalism. So I think a lot of people be interested in how you got your start in journalism. I know you're a California native, so I'm sure that story starts somewhere along those lines, but can you can you elaborate on how you got your start in journalism? What was your career path? So I thought I wanted to be a TV news anchor. I thought I wanted to be either a White House correspondent or a TV news anchor. When I was in high school at El Camino Real High School in beautiful Woodland Hills, California, a few stops off the 101 from you guys up there. Go El Camino Real. Go Conquistadors, the mighty Conquistadors. We're very good at academic decathlon and softball. But, um, Those are two I, good things. Yes, I was the anchor of our TV news show, ECR News, and I liked it and it was fun. I went to SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Um, I was broadcast journalism major. And then once I got there, I learned that I liked writing for the paper more and it was more satisfying to tell a story in that way. Plus, I learned that when you get your start in TV news, for the vast majority of people, you've got to go to like itty bitty markets and itty bitty towns in the middle of nowhere in the country. So like my husband, for example, is, is a longtime TV news producer, but he thought he wanted to be a sports anchor. and He got his start in Laredo, Texas. You know, you've got to get your start someplace small. And I thought... I don't want to 
do that. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciated my TV news writing professor was a, a guy named Tracy Rowlett, who was a longtime anchor at the ABC station in Dallas. And he, at the time I thought, oh, this guy is such a downer. Like he doesn't love it anymore. But he was just trying to be pragmatic and trying to tell us the truth and tell all these pretty sorority girls and pageant queens, like you're not just going to go out there and host the Today Show or whatever. Right. So I, in retrospect, I appreciated his his pragmatism. So, so he got, was very candid with, he was. with you and the other students about this particular vocation. Right. And so I decided I wanted to go into, into print. Haha. <laughs> what well, used to be called print journalism in the 90s. And coming out of school, I was an editor at the school newspaper, the Daily Campus. And I, I sent clips out. I actually like copied off. I cut out of the newspaper and I copied off clips I had written stories of and sent them out to newspapers all over Texas and Louisiana. Got my first job at the Shreveport Times in Shreveport, mm-hmm. Louisiana. I was the bureau chief in Natchitoches, Louisiana. As a film person, you know where Natchitoches is, Paul, because it's where they shot Steel Magnolias. There you go. This is the thing they're I famous for. I love the for. movie reference. Right. Great so location. It's, right. It's a very Steel Magnolias at the top of my man list of <laughs> manly films to watch. It's okay to cry. Should I do be, it. I love those kind of movies. That was a great movie. So, um, so I worked there for a year. I, I bureau chief means you are the bureau. Went to a couple different newspapers in California. Met my husband in Salinas, California, when he was a TV news producer at the NBC station, and I was the police reporter at the newspaper in Salinas, California. I covered a lot of drive-by shootings. So I have a hard news background. I have like a general assignment hard news background. Which you need for the incredible world of entertainment. Which actually became, it does become relevant. I think whatever kind of journalism you want to go into, whether it is entertainment or business or technology or sports, I think having those fundamentals are are crucial to telling any story you're going to tell. So um, I met Chris and we followed one another around to various jobs, but eventually ended up back in Dallas where he got a job at the Fox station and I got a job with the Associated Press. And that is where I got my start as a film critic was in, in the Dallas Bureau of the AP um, I was working just some random Saturday shift. When you work for the AP, you kind of got to do every job. You know, when you're starting out, I was doing some Saturday broadcast shift and some member newspaper called in looking for a film review and we didn't have it. And I started looking around and I realized we weren't reviewing everything. And I have were always you loved writing film. film. Were you writing film reviews already or was this no. like you were thrown into the deep end of the pool? No, I, I threw myself into the deep end. <laughs> I jumped off. I might, right. have been, I might not have been wearing a bathing suit even. I just jumped. <laughs> and uh, I pestered the arts editor in New York. Her name is Dolores Barkley. And she gave me this shot that she didn't have to give me. And I'm eternally grateful to her for it because I wouldn't have a career without her. And I said, look, I see we're not reviewing everything. I love film. I always have. I think my style would be a good fit. Can you give me a shot? And she did. And that was March of 1999. And it would not have shook out this way today. I mean, what, what they were doing was they had just random writers covering other beats, like the book critic or the science writer or a national writer. And they would get to things here and there. But there was no like structure for reviewing comprehensively 
whatever was coming out that week. So I gave it a shot and that was in Dallas. And then they brought me to New York to cover entertainment. I was in New York from 2000 to 2006. And while I was there, I suggested to my editor at this point, his name is Jesse Washington. He's also somebody I, I want to mention because he was mentors, crucial too. Mentors, very much right? so, Very much so. But also um, he looked at things in an innovative way, which is unusual at a place like the Associated Press, or at least it was unusual back then at the AP as this behemoth organization that is slow to move and change. And so I said to him, there's no film critic. <laughs> there's no full-time film critic. And I'd yeah. like to be the full-time film critic. And I had been writing film reviews for five years at this point. And he said, okay. And he gave me the job. And so I became the AP's first film, full-time film critic. And there's never been one since. There was, there was not That's one really before. Interesting. And there's not one since. Well, because during my time there, the job changed. You know, the AP had to, to learn and, and grow and adapt and change as the internet so significantly changed the way journalism works and changes the meaning of deadlines and changes the speed with which you have to do things and changes who you have to reach to remain viable. And so they thought they needed to break more celebrity news. And so they wanted us all to break celebrity news, which I could not possibly care less about. I just don't, I never did. I don't care. And I think a film critic shouldn't be schmoozing up to studio publicists. Yeah, keep your manner. objectivity, right? Yes. I don't want to ever even be putting out the notion that I am beholden to any one studio or publicist. I want to look at everything evenly and with an open mind. So I quit. Your friend, your friend Dave Germain, who we'll get to, I'm sure, at some point. We your, will get our, to our Dave Germain. Friend. Yeah, so he and I quit in the same week. But I, I, yeah, so I was in New York for a while. I was in LA for a while. And, uh, you know, I always writing film reviews, but also covering the Oscars and the Golden Globes and the Grammys and, you know, doing major celebrity obits. The one piece of news I did break just totally by accident was Patrick Swayze's death. Um, we had all been assigned celebrities to follow as like our beat. So I totally arbitrarily got like Reese Witherspoon and Penelope Cruz, but I also got Patrick Swayze. And right. he was very sick for a while. And so I, I did I call. That. Yeah, I did call his publicist several times. Every once in a while, say, hey, it's Christy Lemire at the AP. Just wanted to check in and see how things are going. And then they called They called us first. When Patrick Swayze died, they called the bureau looking for me. But sad news at the time. I think. Yes. A legend. Really, yeah, total legend. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting, though, how, like you said, you've, you've worn many hats. I'm wearing one right now. People can't see it. But you've worn many hats in the realm of journalism. It seems like all these things have been really crucial in the development of your voice, who you are, and the fact that usually how I see is that somebody who reviews film loves film in some way. So you have that love of film. But then on top of that, you're covering the industry as well. So you see both sides of it. Well, also when you've been around for a long time, like I have been, you know, I've been doing this for over... 20 years now, you get to know people and, you know, whether you're on a film festival jury with them or you're on a panel with them or you meet them through friends and you get to know people who are, you know, directors, screenwriters that you like. And so maybe at that point you have to recuse yourself. You know, one of my dearest, closest friends is Phil Johnston, who wrote the Wreck-It Ralph movies and wrote Zootopia and co-wrote the second Wreck-It Ralph. And so I just don't review his movies anymore. 
Yeah. You know, it's how just, it's just best not really. <laughs> yeah. How can you, I mean, if it's film criticism and you're critiquing, it's very hard to do that. And we, we all know we all have filmmaker friends and family. And sometimes you have to recuse yourself from making any comment because you can't truly be objective unless you're somehow financially tied to a particular project. Like if I'm the producer and I've never done this, but if I was of a friend or family member's movie, then I feel I would have the right to really say things about that movie. But otherwise I'm staying out of it. Cause I want to, I want to get, and no matter how much people ask you uh, to give your opinion, a friend or a family member, they don't really want to hear it, especially <laughs> if it's negative. That's true. So let's, let's move on. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you really, you delved into your educational work related background. I know you talked about the AP and I know that we met kind of through the AP because I was working a lot on, uh, well, working every Sunday on the box office stories. And Dave Germain, as we mentioned earlier, fantastic journalist and one of my best friends, and I'm sure one of yours, even though he would hate to hear us say that. But, <laughs> you know, I used to do the box office story every Sunday. Then we became fast beer drinking friends, which we remain to this day. And then I met you because you were also at the AP. Right. So I would have to sometimes do Sunday box office shifts. And it was always a pleasure to talk to you on the phone about that because you're a lovely gentleman to chat with. And also everyone's in a good mood on these Sundays. Like we're all up kind of early and working, but everyone's in a good mood unless you are the publicist at a studio with a movie that did not do as well as perhaps you might have hoped. Yeah. It's a tough Sunday a tough morning. Road to home, so yeah. So, uh, so no, but that's how we got to know each other. And right. Dave Germain had been at the Associated Press for like 25 years and was like longtime old school AP newsman, as they are called. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, that's so he, right. The old terminal, the old nomenclature. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Dave Germain, what are your favorite celebrity interactions? <laughs> Oh my God. So do you mean like interviews or just like people I've yeah, run into? Memorable. Well, let's start with, I, I know you've interviewed celebrities, I'm sure uh, many times in your career, but are there any that stood out, for example, on the positive side, like someone who you might've thought would be inaccessible or hard to get information out of, but they turned out to be really open and honest and friendly and all those things that we all hope all our favorite celebrities right. would be or a actors? I don't know. I'm not sure I've had that specifically. I can tell you some of my, my favorite interviews over the years. My absolute yeah. favorite will always be Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, And I had the pleasure of talking to him when he was at a point of flux in his career. He had just done all the Harry Potter movies and was on the, on the verge of playing you know, naked on stage on Broadway in Equus. Oh, I recall that. That's right. Right. And he was, and he, was the, he was promoting his first film. I'm blanking on the name of it now. It's not the History Boys. First non-Harry Potter film. He was like 18 years old, 20 years old. And like so quick-witted, so self-deprecating. Such just, a great actor, by the way. And I like, yeah. And he and Robert Pattinson both are people who made really interesting choices with their big blockbuster franchise fame. You know, they could have just gone on to be heartthrobs or done, you know, big comic booky things their yeah, whole lives. Lighthouse with and Robert they, Pattinson. Yeah. And they, and Daniel Radcliffe has chosen weird stuff like Swiss army man. And so I really admire his, his choices, but he was a sweetheart. Um, I got to interview Chris Evans at his house and drank beer with him in the Hollywood Hills. I'm jealous right now. That, that, that was sounds fun. Like a good time. 
That was fun. That was for um, a cover story for American Way magazine. That was after I'd left the AP and had begun um, freelancing at that point. And, you know, you buzz the gate at his house and this familiar voice comes over and it's him. It's Captain America himself. And I think it was just me and him there. Maybe he had some like handler in a back room in case I got handsy, handsy or inappropriate or something. I don't know, but Christy, he, how dare you? Not me. I'm a married lady, but um, we had beers and looked at the view and he was like nice as can be. And, you know, he's, he's like the charming movie star that you want Hope to they all have. Be, right? Yes. He was good. Um, did tequila shots with Johnny Knoxville, but that's sort of perfunctory, you know, I think I don't know what I'm more jealous that. of the Chris <laughs> Evans beer or the right. Johnny Knoxville tequila shots. But his his heart wasn't Holy in crap. it. We reached a point in the interview. We were at some bar, some hotel lobby bar in New York, and like maybe a half an hour in, he's like, "Well, I guess we gotta do tequila shots now." Like that's just part but of the deal. It is part of the deal. And by the it way, is. had you not done that, <laughs> you would be instantly uncool to him. Like if you said, "Oh no, I can't do that." Right. I, I can't. I don't, I, yeah. You have to really do what the celebrity or the act, you know, the actor, I don't even know if you're supposed to say actor, actress. I, that's a whole other discussion. He's a personality. Johnny Knoxville defies categorization. Um, but then like just random celebrity experiences. Like my husband, how, do husband, these, how do these usually work though? Do you, are they normally, do, the, do you get a, a notification from a, a handler or a PR person? And then you generally meet at a hotel lobby bar or like with, how do you get to go to somebody's house? Is that up to the the particular celebrity as to how they want to be approached? I think or so. Anything? I think so. Yeah. So when I was at the AP, I would, you know, put in with their publicist, like, Hey, let's say whatever this big Avengers movie is, is coming out. I want to talk to so-and-so. And then you go back and forth with the publicist with many layers of publicist as to what the access is going to look like. Um, I think, think the reason I went to Chris Evans house is just that he's Chris Evans and like, it's just easier. Um, I also interviewed Penelope Cruz at her house because she wasn't feeling well. And so I went to her. Um, but that's unusual. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like many layers of back and forth. Like when I, I interviewed Charlie Hunnam also for American way, I met him at Greenblatt's deli. Cause it's a Charlie Hunnam is one of the coolest guys ever i think he was very down to earth yeah yeah when you hear him actually speak in his accent he has that northern accent it's like it's unexpected because when you see him on something like sons of anarchy you know he's doing an american accent or in many oh, that's films, right in many films he's right. doing a more a more posh british accent um but here is is like gravelly northern accent so yeah he was very professional very business-like we drank tea together but that was, that was like arranged through a publicist where like, okay, this is where he wants to go. Yeah. So basically you go where right. they want to go. So tequila, beer, and tea. <laughs> yes. There's are the common threads here. Yes. And <laughs> hunky white guys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the reason I'm asking you about this is I think most people dream of having the opportunity to sit down with a lot of, and I don't even want to call them celebrities. I, that doesn't do these people really justice creative people who are in front of and behind the camera for some of our favorite TV shows and movies, I think everyone would love the opportunity to sit down with them and talk to them. So I think it's really cool that you're able to do that, that your career choices made it 
become a reality that you get to go to Chris Evans' house. And while to some seasoned journalists such as yourself, after a while that may seem like a common thing, and maybe it doesn't to you. I'm not saying it does to you, but to most people, that's truly something everyone would love to be able to do. Oh yeah. Oh no, it's always cool. It's always, you know, it's like I think even going to see movies on the studio lot is still cool. You know, back when we could leave our home and go do a thing like that, go to Warner Brothers or Sony, yeah. you know, driving on the lot and walking among all the sound stages. Like that's still cool to me after all this time. So it's cool to me too. I yeah. get to go to lunch there every once in a while. I have a meeting or something. I'm like, what am I doing here? How did I get here? I think if I'm you get so jaded, yeah, if you get so jaded that it's not fun or exciting anymore, then like find something else to do. Exactly. Somebody, Don't take it for granted. Yeah. Somebody's going to want to be excited about those kinds of opportunities and experiences. So. Well, don't you think too, your, your excitement for that comes through in the work. If you're sort of over it and everything's just like, eh, do I have to go to a movie premiere? Oh <laughs> God, do I have to go to the Oscars? Oh my, and there are probably some people in the industry who feel like that after a time, mm -hmm. but I think it comes through in the work, especially with what you do. You can tell your passion is there. It hasn't diminished one bit oh, over thanks. the years of doing this. Do you have a proud moment of your career? Like <laughs> I always like to ask people, is there, and it's kind of weird to talk about because you often don't recognize it when it happens, or maybe somebody else tells you you did something that you should be proud of. Is there anything that, that you would count as a really proud moment of your career? I was really proud of the TV show that I did. Yeah, talk I, about that a little bit. Yeah. I co-hosted a show called Ebert Presents at the Movies. And Roger Ebert wanted to recreate the Siskel and Ebert type of show. And other people had done this over the years. And when, when Roger could no longer speak because of his cancer, Richard Roper had various stand-in co-hosts that came and filled in. And I was one of them. I did it several times and Richard and I got along nicely. And so Roger knew who I was. And then um, various incarnations of this show were in development for many years. And then eventually it worked that it was going to be me with a very much younger critic named Ignati Vishnevetsky, who was at that point, he had just turned 25 and never been on television in his life. <laughs> and I, I was 39. That's a good way to learn, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was 39 and I've been doing it for a long time. And we had a very different, you know, chemistry than Roger and Gene did. Nobody could possibly ever have that kind of natural chemistry, that kind of natural friction that made those reviews so exciting and so combustible and so watchable. Um, no one can do that. I think trying to manufacture that is false. We didn't try to manufacture that. We were our own people and we were often on the same page and sometimes we weren't. And it was more of a conversation than it was a battle, but it was really fun. And so for a year we did this, we shot at the same the same place, the same studio where Siskel and Ebert originally was shot when really? they were when they were a PBS station. I remember watching show, Siskel and Ebert at the movies when it was on PBS before it was on local, you know, nationwide syndicated, yeah. syndicated channels. And and for you, when you were talking about the first review you wrote, and I don't know if you recall which movie that was for. In my life, the first review I wrote, yeah, it was, was for it? a film, a German film called The Harmonists about this German singing group. Could you have imagined then that someday you'd be on the same stage that Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel graced all those years ago? Oh yeah, no, not at all. And I, I fondly watched Siskel and Ebert growing up and, you know, you'd hear the theme song and, and get excited about, Oh, what are they going to talk about? And, you know, I, I had the 
the pleasure of growing up in Los Angeles, but I can imagine that no matter where you live, you learned about a lot of really great independent films, foreign films, documentaries that maybe you might not ever have heard of if it weren't for them taking time to shine a light on them alongside the blockbusters, alongside the awards contenders. So yeah, I, I learned a lot from them over the years and we never tried to be them. We never could, but it was for, for a year. It was really fun. We were on PBS um, it was a great honor to work with Roger and with Chaz, who I still keep in touch with. And um, yeah, it was, it was to have that faith in me was, was a big deal because he was a legend. And I know most legends and I, I've worked for a couple of those in my life. They don't suffer fools and they don't give out false compliments, right? <laughs> so I mean, if Roger Ebert didn't think you had it, you know, that, that, that thing, he wouldn't have allowed you to do that. There's well, no way. That's that, right? that's very sweet. He, he he was very generous though. I mean, yeah, he was he was really sharp and could get impatient certainly, but he he was really generous, especially as he was no longer able to speak and he became more prolific on Twitter. Um, he, in in his column, writing about myriad subjects that did not have anything to do with film, whether it was about alcoholism or atheism or his rice cooker or whatever. Um, he took the time to really foster talent and a diverse array of talent all around the world. So he didn't have to, and he did, but he was, he was that generous of spirit. That's great. I, I love to hear that. What a great mentor. Mm-hmm. Another one. Yep. A very famous mentor. Yep. <laughs> so let's talk about, I'm going to segue a little bit into the whole movie theater experience versus streaming. And right now that's particularly relevant because streaming is other than drive-ins and a few brick and mortar theaters, streaming is the only game in town. And in fact, there's no competition even from restaurants, generally speaking, bars, sporting events, and concerts. So people are really embracing streaming and we've seen the data showing that increase. But as a film critic and someone who studies this, can you talk, and I know Roger Ebert used to talk about this a little bit, the difference, the, the psychological effect of seeing a movie on a big screen, the impact it has on you. And I'm not saying one's, well, I love the movie theater experience. That's my favorite, but I love streaming too. But for you, what is the difference? And I know this is kind of a big question, the difference between the movie theater and the streaming experience. I mean, I would pretty much always rather go see a movie in a theater if I can, especially if it is you know, something that is very beautifully shot and uh, is clearly meant to be seen on, on, a, on a big screen. So much of what I see, whether it's for radio or for the podcast, maybe you can watch through streaming and maybe you always could, like maybe it's a documentary or it's something smaller, a smaller budgeted film. Um, I've for years have watched things on streaming that way um, out of convenience and just time efficiency, if nothing else. When I do KPCC Film Week here in Los Angeles, we try to get to like 10, 12 films a week. And so we're, we're really watching them at weird hours of the day and night to find time to get them in. You know, I've got a husband, I've got a 10-year-old son, we just adopted a dog. So there's only so many hours in the day. So to be able to watch a screener at 5.30 in the morning on my couch is convenient. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd much rather go see it with my friends have that communal experience. There are films like A Quiet Place where you really cannot replicate that experience at home. And you shouldn't. And John Krasinski knew that early on and was one of the first people to postpone the sequel to A Quiet Place. That's right. Knowing that, you know, 
it could be a long time before it can be seen in a theater, but it really should be. And I'll, I'll never forget that screening because you could hear a pin drop. I mean, <laughs> literally, and, literally. And people, people were just wrapped R A P T wrapped with inattention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unusual, you know, when people are, checking their phones or munching on popcorn or opening up wrappers or whatever, like you, it was silence. And so I miss that or I miss when, you know, you're at a, maybe it's a dumb, cheesy underwater sci-fi horror thriller and the underwater monster leaps out at the screen and everyone everybody jumps. jumps. Like, you know, it's coming, but you still jump anyway. I miss that. I miss the communal experience of that. And we all sit together in the same basic area of a theater my, my podcast co-host and I and all of our film critic friends, we all kind of sit. If you're facing the screen, we're like back into the right. Not the absolute last back row, but like one or two like you're down you're specific where you got to sit. That's where you sit. Doesn't everybody have their spot? Where oh, yeah. Sit? I like the aisle. Because yeah. I, I tend to have a couple of beers during a movie. I need to <laughs> be able to get out. But uh, <laughs> I love what you said, though, about A Quiet Place. Because that movie is going to be studied for years on so many levels. It's so meta. It's so innovative. It's interactive. I mean, I remember I would chew on a piece of popcorn and go, and then I'm like, oh, geez, I'm going to disturb everyone in the theater. And it really was a very interesting film. And that film was on the runway. It was going to be released. And then mid-March, the theaters hit the pause button. So I love that, that Paramount is waiting and the filmmakers. And clearly Krasinski knows that A Quiet Place is a movie you first want to see in a theater. And the thing I love about streaming is that movies I love, I'll watch over and over. I kind of did that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I saw it like six times in a theater. Oh, wow. But eventually, it, yeah, I love it. I saw it 70 millimeters. of your life. It was so, Quentin <laughs> Tarantino owes me, I'm telling you. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with, with that movie and about the soundtrack. But anyway, <laughs> it was it's really cool to bring those friends home. If you, you know, if you think about it, a movie is a friend. I put, I famously, not famously, famously to me, I watched Nebraska, that movie. If I want to relax and just chill, Bruce Dern, June Squibb, my hero, uh, Will Forte. I, I love that movie on so many levels, but it's great to be able to watch that at home on the small screen. But first it's that theatrical, that it's the prestige, it's the exclusivity, and no secret, I love the movie theater experience. But I also love streaming because there's so much great content there. So I, I, I get that you love the movie theater, I do too. Streaming has become something really interesting, the dynamics of it, right? There are a lot of things that maybe I would not ordinarily have watched, and I think this is probably the case for a lot of folks, that we are now watching because we're all stuck at home. And that explains the success of Tiger King, for example, right? There you go. Like Tiger I King, don't know great that example. I would, right. I don't know that I would have devoted seven hours of my life to Tiger King. Otherwise, you know, I think, and, and I think that's why it became a phenomenon because it came out right when all the stay at home orders began. And so you could watch it and marvel at its insanity and then like go on Twitter and have the experience of talking to people about it who also saw it. Like, oh my God, have you seen Tiger King? It's nuts. Um, oh my God, did Carol really feed her husband to the tigers? It's nuts. Um, and I think that's also part of, and we did Tiger King on my podcast for that very reason is that we, we want to talk about what folks are talking about. I also did a whole separate little series about The Last Dance on ESPN, which just wrapped up this past weekend, this 10-hour Michael Jordan documentary series, which, again, people might have been interested in it, but I don't know that it would have had like the many millions of viewers each week that it had. So in, in that regard, yeah, streaming has, has been great you know, to, to give us something to do. 
because you have unlimited bandwidth of content, but now people have unlimited bandwidth of time at home. Mm-hmm. Though people are working, they can't be watching, binging all the time. But for a lot of people, it's a way to get away from the news and the world situation. But that doesn't mean we all want escapist fare either. Although escapist fare can take many forms. Horror to me, intense action to me, R-rated films to me are escapist. So I think to a lot of people, they're just finding that balance. But the drive-in movie theater phenomenon is very interesting. In our data, we're seeing a massive increase year over year for drive-ins. And people are literally driven to go to a to to a drive-in to see a movie in that way because it's communal and it's on the big screen. And you are a car guy, so this yes. marries both the things you love. It's cars and movies at the same time. It's it's perfect. And I was just watching, I talk about this all the time, ad nauseum is The Outsiders, mm-hmm. that movie. There's a great clip on YouTube of the drive-in movie theater scene. And now people are really getting into just going to the, it's such an old fashioned idea, but it's actually modern now because people feel safe in their cars and it's really cool. There's a mission, it's called the mission Tiki Mm -hmm. in Montclair Mm -hmm. and they're just seeing a a huge outpouring of support for their theater and for that experience. What do you think the new normal will look like? That's interesting, right? Because you need other people. You need to be with other people, physically be with them from a logistical perspective, but also just for that creative energy that's so essential to anything that you do, whether it's a you know TV documentary series or an indie film. So I'm 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 very curious as to what these things are going to look like. I know that some content is being created at home now. Like Amy Schumer has some cooking show. She's yeah, doing I've it seen at home. That. Yeah. Her, hus- her husband's fun. a chef and I guess she can't cook. And so that's, that's the gimmick. And their, their nanny. I think runs, it's called Amy Schumer can't cook. Right. Something <laughs> like that. Learn, learns to cook. Something <laughs> yeah, like that. Learns to cook. So that's on like the food network. So, so stuff like that, that's really simple. can be done now. Um, I guess you could argue that under strained times, under times of turmoil, it's when great art comes out, right? So in theory, whatever feelings of anxiety or isolation or fear that we're all experiencing might get funneled into something that is seminal and definitive of this era that we're in right now. Um, It's a nice idea. I also have the optimism that people are really, really going to want to go back to the theaters. And I'm sure you share that knowing you um, and and knowing what a champion and a cheerleader you are for the theatrical experience. But I, I have, at least I'll I'll rephrase this. In the beginning, when all this began two months ago, I had a whole lot of hope that theaters would come back bigger than ever, that we would all be really, really craving the the communal experience and the shared catharsis and that it would be emotional. Our our mutual friend, Scott Mance, recently drove by the Arclight and just took pictures of the Arclight. I saw that. Like an old friend who took a picture. I love Scott Mance. Yeah. We both know him very well. Yeah. So um, I I do have that hope still. And there will be a warming up period, but maybe the return of legs will happen. Maybe films will play for longer. And even though there's going to be reduced capacity in theaters, every theater, at least in the beginning, might be devoted to one movie or every auditorium. So they may be able to make up for that shortfall. But over time, there'll be more and more movies released. But it, it, there was a time when, when you and I were young, Paul, long, all long those, time ago. All those years ago. 
when movies would play for months. Yeah. Like the same movie would be out for like six months. I'm At, not imagining that, alone? am I? Home How alone. long was Home Alone out there? Oh, for weeks. It was number one for weeks. Before Titanic, it had been one of those movies that played from the holidays like till August of the next year. And it used to be that films were a wide release was like a thousand theaters back in the eighties. Even it would be even fewer than that would be considered a wide release. So films didn't open as big, but they played longer. So it'll be interesting to see if, if that dynamic comes back at least in the short term. And then in 2021, there's so many big movies out there that if this COVID-19 pandemic situation is resolved to some sort of, acceptability. It could be a really huge year in theaters, but again, it's one of these unknowable things. What we do know though is people love going to the movies. They will go back. The movie theater, despite a lot of people saying they won't, they will return, but we just don't know exactly what it looks like. And it'd be naive to think that we do. Right. And so what, do you sit like every four seats? I think they just have to, and by the way, the luxury theaters that have those giant recliners, Mm -hmm. they seem particularly well positioned to accommodate the social distancing. That's true. There's a a regal at the top of the hill here in Palsbury's where I live that has all the big, every auditorium has all the big reclining seats. That's a really good point. But then you got to touch all those buttons to make your seat recline. And then do you bring your own spritzer bottle of like These are great questions. I mean, that <laughs> that's the thing. People are going to, well, look, right now people are doing a lot of things like that. So be interesting to see how people adapt to this situation. But things we are doing now that seem just normal and part of everyday life, like we're putting on masks as we go into the store. We couldn't have imagined doing that even six months ago or even four months ago. And here we are. Well, let me, uh, we, we have just a few minutes left here. I want to talk to you about your podcast real quick and then tell people where we can find you on all the socials. Yes. Yes. So our podcast is called Breakfast All Day. We used to be called What the Flick. We were a show on YouTube for many years, part of the Young Turks Network, and they canceled us in August of 2018. Why did they cancel us? Is no, that what, said, you asked? what? How dare what? they? Cancel? What? How dare they? Well, yeah, they were focusing on politics at that point, so they got rid oh, okay. of all their all their non political programming. They got streamlined, and so that was on a Monday in August. And then three days later, we were at my dining room table because I had this podcast equipment that I hadn't used yet. I meant to launch a podcast, didn't know what I wanted it to be about. So what the flick began as a podcast there, and then we rebranded ourselves as Breakfast All Day. We are called Breakfast All Day. <laughs> Because um, we were eating breakfast in the middle of the day when we were brainstorming name ideas, but also I love we that thought name. I, we, we thank you. We, we wanted to be something kind of intriguing, kind of appealing that didn't have the word film or flick or anything in it. We wanted it to be kind of, kind of like a curiosity, like ooh, breakfast all day. What's that? And so we talk about film reviews, and uh, you know we do whatever is the big stuff, the small stuff. I do, I do kind of view it as our duty to use our voice to shine a light on smaller stuff that perhaps she wouldn't have heard of. So yeah, we do all the big superhero stuff, but then we do little indies and foreign films and documentaries too. I do a separate spinoff interview series, which you appeared on, called Breakfast All Day a la Carte, where I have talked to my friends who work in film or television, authors, actors, a ballerina, 
uh, cast. Yeah, you've interviewed a lot of people. The depth <laughs> and breadth of the the types of people that you've interviewed is amazing, and I love that because it's breakfast all day. You're not boxed into a corner on any particular topic. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, it's been cool. It's been a pleasure. So I, I love doing that. I miss doing that. My last interview was with a guy named Jake Tremblay, not Jacob Tremblay, not the kid <laughs> from Room, but um, Jake Tremblay, who is a production designer. So that kind of stuff interests me too. And then we do a whole separate Patreon where we do TV recaps of everything from Game of Thrones, Westworld, to Fosse Verdon, to Mrs. America, um, Tiger King, The Last Dance. And uh, as we do that, we do a thing where you can vote on what you'd like to see us review. We'll put up a poll of like four films and say, you guys pick, and then they can pick. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. You know, it, it's, it's what we want it to be. And now we are doing our podcast over Zoom, kind of similar to how we're doing this thing here now. Yeah. And uh, I, I miss my friend. It's been over two months, but uh, I, I also live really far away. And so <laughs> it's been kind of nice to <laughs> you not do. drive. I used, I used to live in, in yeah. that area, Palos you Verdes know. area. I grew up there. So that's really cool. So we can find you on Spotify, iTunes. Yep. Where, where can all we find your podcast? And, and all the where places. Can we, where can we the, find you? Yeah. So I am at Christy Lemire on Twitter. And on Instagram, although my personal Instagram is private, but we are also at BeFastAllDay on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We also do YouTube versions of our reviews, so you can see our lovely faces there. And uh, we're pretty easy to find. Thank you again for being here, Christy. It's been a real honor. You're so sweet. Thank you for being the nicest guy on the planet and asking me and putting me on the hot seat for once. It was so much fun talking to this you. This was fun. I like this. Let's do this again. Yes. All right, Christy. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.